grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So after that reading from Malachi 3, what did you hear? I imagine it was kind of this. Blah, 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 tithe, blah, 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 pour down a blessing, blah, 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 this is the word of the Lord. All right? And you probably thought to yourself, oh, great, here comes another stewardship sermon. Now, granted, you probably haven't heard many here in this chapel, but I know from vast experience that there's probably nothing more painful to listen to than a stewardship sermon. And I also know from a little experience that there's nothing more painful for a preacher to preach than a stewardship sermon, especially a Lutheran stewardship sermon. So let's not think of this message today as a sermon. Let's think of it instead as a Bible study. And go ahead, pull out your Bibles. There's one in your pew, page 802, and turn to Malachi chapter 3. Now, the first thing you do in a Bible study, of course, is look at the context. And actually, it's pretty important. If you look back at the reading we had from Malachi a couple weeks ago that Dr. Seleska preached on, Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 5, you notice that the theme there, if you recall, is the cleansing of God's people on the last day. The Lord will send his messenger who purifies the people on that day, in verses 2 through 4, and he will punish the unjust, specifically in verse 5, the sorcerers and those who neglect the widows and the orphans and the travelers. So that's the immediately preceding context. And right after our passage, in Malachi uh, uh, 3, verse 13, you again return to the great and awesome day of the Lord. On that day, the wicked will be tread down, but the righteous, according to 4 verse 2, will leap like cattle from their stalls. I have no idea why that's a good thing, but I trust that it is. So our reading for today from Malachi 3, 6 through 12, is sandwiched in between two passages about the last day, right? To use our seminary word, two eschatological passages, and in the middle is this passage about tithing. And it's connected to the previous and the following pericope by that that conjunction in verse 6, 4. Or another way to translate that is because. And the question being addressed in our text for today is why has this great promised day not happened? Why has God now poured out his blessing upon his people? Why has he not cast out the unjust? He's promised he'd do it. Why is it not happening now? And so this text is about why in this day is the promised last day not happening? What is the problem now? How do you live now in light of the fact that God has promised that he will come on the last day. And so in Malachi 3, verse 6, we get the problem. It's not the Lord's fault that the day of the Lord has not come. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't slow to respond. It's actually your fault, Israel. 
Now, you've got to understand the setting of what was going on with Israel at this time. They're back from exile, as we've heard, uh, middle of the 5th century, but it's not really working out so great. They've rebuilt the temple, but it's not a great temple. And what now? Shouldn't God be happy that we've built a temple? Now maybe he should give us something back. Maybe we should have this great day when all our enemies will be destroyed. Now maybe we should have the day when the rain will fall and the crops will grow and the locusts won't come back. But here's where the Lord puts it back at them. Yes, I brought you back from exile. Yes, you've rebuilt a building. But you have not returned to me. See, I haven't changed, says the Lord. I keep my promises. I said I will deliver, and I will deliver. I'm not a God who says one thing and does another. But what about you, Israel? You are the one who needed to change, but you did not. So verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. You were supposed to turn away from lawlessness, but you did not. You were supposed to take care of the widow and the orphan, but you did not. You were supposed to build a temple and actually use it to worship, but you did not. Oh, you built a temple, but it's an empty shell. No one worships me there. No one is there to call upon me by name. What's going on? Well, if this were a real Bible study and we had time, we'd take a look over at Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10 and 13 and get the background for this. Israel had come back. They rebuilt the temple and dedicated themselves to this covenant again that now they're going to live in this land in a way faithfully that they had not before. But there's a kind of a new wrinkle. See, before this, the temple had been built by the king, and he kind of took care of stuff for them. But now in Israel, there's no king. Who's going to pay for all this stuff? Who's going to build the building? And so the people said, okay, we're going to add to the covenant we had before. We're going to keep all those statutes Moses said, yes. But now we're going to, we're going to bring wood for the sacrifices. And we're going to bring in food for the Levites. We're going to make sure that this place is maintained so that we can worship God. But three chapters later, after Nehemiah goes on a little business trip, he comes back and there's no one at the temple. Well, not exactly. Someone has actually moved into the temple and made it his house. So rather being the than being the house of the Lord, it's the house of, well, some guy. Right? Have you actually turned to me, says the Lord. So it's in this context that Malachi is speaking. Verses 8 and 9. You, Israel, are robbing me, says the Lord. But then Israel plays innocent. How have we robbed you, right? Well, let me tell you. In your tithes and your contributions, the one you swore you would do, you have neglected. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The entire nation of you is robbing me. And here's where we get our stewardship promise. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, contrary to a good number of stewardship sermons and TV preachers, this passage is not about your personal stewardship practice. 
This is not a promise that if I take out my salary and benefit sheet, helpfully supplied by the worker benefit plans, get out my calculator and multiply that number by 0 0.10, I get my 10%, and then divide that number by 52 for the number of weeks in a year, and then take my handy little offering envelope and write out a check every week to match that amount, that then I am doing what God wants me to do, and he will bless me because he has promised to do so in the Bible. Kind of an investment scheme. If I invest my 10%, then I get my blessing. So you seminarians get a pretty good deal, right? You make, what, 8.05 an hour doing your student work? So for only 80.5 cents an hour, you get your student loans paid off? Heck, not a bad deal, right? Or maybe we don't need to be so crass because we're Lutherans, right? So let's spiritualize the passage. It's not really about money. It's about tithing your time and your talents. Give a little time to God and he will bless you. So, I mean, all of you sitting here certainly haven't made because you are overpaid and underworked. You're at a seminary for Pete's sake. How much more time could you possibly give to God? You're tithing just by getting out of bed in the morning for Pete's sake, right? <laughs> God must bless you more than anybody else. Problem is, last time I looked, me living over on Seminary Terrace is driving a 12-year-old van in a bottom-end Honda, and the guy across the fence on Arundel is driving a nice Mercedes. Maybe he's tithing and I'm not. Well, I hate to burst the bubble on your get-rich-quick scheme, but this passage is not about you, personally, getting your blessing from God in exchange for your offering, as if the Bible is nothing more than a prospectus for a mutual fund. Well, how do we know? Look at verses 11 and 12. What's the blessing promised? I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the, your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. The devourer is not contrary to the Democrats, the Wall Street fat cats who stole your pension fund, nor is the devourer contrary to the Republicans, big government who wants to tax and spend. You see, the blessing that Israel will receive is simply what God has promised from the beginning that he will be their God, they will be his people, and they will live in fellowship with him and one another, and indeed all creation as his people. This land flowing with milk and honey. And why does he do this? Well, not really for their sake, but for his. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This land will be a land of delight. The nation will look up, all the nations will look upon you and say that, yes, indeed, this is the people chosen by the Lord of hosts, the one he has made his own. Now, I know we're all Americans. We think the Bible is all about me, but it's not. It's about God and what he has done and is doing and will do. And what he has promised from the beginning is to make for himself a people set apart to live in fellowship with him and with one another. You see, if the tithes were brought in, then the entire people would be blessed. The harvest would be great for everyone. 
Now, would you, as an individual, get a share in that bounty, that blessing? Of course you would. But so would the guy sitting across the pew from you who only put in 4%. And in fact, so would the widow and the orphan who put in zero. In fact, if you put in your 10%, you might actually lose money on the deal because your 10% has to make up for the zero that the widow or the orphan or that widow who puts in her whole uh, might at the temple in Jesus' day has put in. I hate to tell you this, but you're not going to get out of this deal what you're hoping. If you, you think you can get God to give you something in response to what you've given to him. Is it really this hard? Is it really that hard to treat Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, as he wants to be treated? To live as his people in relationship to him and others as he wills? Well, apparently it is. It was too difficult for Israel, and it's too difficult for us. Israel had their own set of problems, a corrupt priesthood, divorce and remarriage comes up in Malachi, neglect of the orphan and widow, neglect of the temple. These are just last in a long line of failures that Israel had made. What are our problems? Where have we failed him? Well, maybe our list isn't so different. We have our own problems with messed up priests and pastors, divorce and remarriage, neglect of the orphan and widow, neglect of worship of God. It's awfully easy for us to do the same thing Israel did and say, where have we robbed you, God? We've built this nice building. We've given you the very finest in this building. But don't play the game that Israel did, as if you are innocent. Because we are the ones who need changing. Or, to put it better, we are the ones who need to be changed. Now, there is actually no gospel in this text. Israel was confronted with their failure. They were rebuked for thinking it's the Lord's fault. But even when the call to bring in the full tithe, even that was only a temporary fix because even had they brought the full tithe in, they would fail at something else or something else again and again and again. But the Lord does not fail. He fulfills his promises. You, people of God, will fail. If it's not tithing, it's something else. But the call to you is the same as it was to Israel. Return to me, says the Lord. Yet even in that, every call to return is doomed to failure, except one. When the Lord himself returns to save his people. You see, remember that this passage is sandwiched in between two eschatological last-day passages. This passage is about the failure of today. It doesn't yet give hope for tomorrow. For that, you need to look at the end of the book of Malachi. There it doesn't say, return to me, as if we could do that. Instead, it says, he will return the hearts of the fathers to their children he will return the hearts of the children to their fathers. God is the one who returns us to him. The messenger of the Lord will appear. The one whom that messenger announces is faithful. And by the death and resurrection of that one, 
Jesus Christ, we have been turned to the Lord. And in him, and in him alone, we continue to walk in his ways. So I apologize. Uh, To get the gospel from Malachi, you're going to have to come back on November 8th when Professor Lewis will preach the rest of Malachi for us. I guess that's the difference between a sermon and a Bible study. But here we have been gathered by the one who has come to us. He is faithful. He has done it. And he will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in his name, we pray. Amen.